0: Jesus that we have a relationship with you thank you father that you raised your son from the dead and he had victory over sin Satan and death and because you raised him you will raise us we know and believe that Lord and as we remind ourselves of these great truths in the scriptures this morning we ask that you would assure our hearts give us great joy That death does not have a hold on us. The agony of death has been beat by Jesus Christ. And I pray that each believer will walk out of here encouraged. Lord, if there's those amongst us that don't know you as their personal Savior, that they they don't know what would happen to them if they died today, Lord. They don't have that security and assurance in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But this would be the day that you would save them. You would cause them to know you personally, Lord. And they too would have no fear of death. So, Lord, we ask that you bless this message today, Lord. We are so grateful for those that are here, Lord, but we do think of those who can't be. Some are going through procedures or processes. Some are in in the hospital even now, Lord. And we love them, and we miss them, and we know that they're suffering. So we call on the great physician, the great comforter of our soul, that you, Lord, would guide and direct them and comfort them. Father, we are also grateful for our missionaries. So good to hear from so many this week who told of their Easter services, how God brought people first time who could hear the gospel around the world. We thank you that we got to participate in that as well, Lord. Please let your word be unhindered, Lord. Let it go forth. Let it not return void. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 20 is my text this morning. As we look at these first verses of chapter 12 through 19 here, we start to understand that Apostle Paul is declaring the importance of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and not just some mystical resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is about the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And look, as I go through the rest of this chapter, I want to drive this point home. If Christ is not resurrected bodily, You will not be resurrected bodily. Our bodily resurrection is tied to his bodily resurrection. And this cannot be uh, any more important than anything uh, than you can imagine because it's so directly tied to the gospel. And so God will gather his people from all time and all places. And he'll put us, now think about this, bodily in his presence. Each and every one of us. Who know Jesus as our Savior. So Jesus Christ is what the Bible will see. We'll see this in future sermons. He is the first fruit of the resurrection. And he is blossoming us, coming right behind him. His fruit will lead to our new birth, our resurrection, our bodily presence in the presence of God Almighty. And so Christ's bodily resurrection proved that Christ forgave our sins. This is what Paul is after here. But Christ's bodily resurrection points to ours. And, and what I love about this, it's really a culmination of redemptive history. All of God's redeem this, this is where it's all going to come together. All of God's plan from the beginning of time and even before time that he knows us, all is going to come together with this bodily resurrection and he brings all of his people into his presence. It is going to be an amazing day. And Paul does not want Corinth To miss out on this worship. Now. When we see the redeemed. Standing in resurrected bodies. We will say. God did this. In fact the Bible tells us that Christ. Through his exertion of his power. Will give us bodies like his. He was the one who spoke of the resurrection and life. Right. He raised Lazarus from the dead. And just before that moment. He knew what he was going to do. He actually weighed it. It was not. It was not an impulsive thing. His plan was to raise Lazarus from the dead. And so he makes that statement to his sisters. I am the resurrection and the dead. No, the life. He's a living God and he is about life. And so he is the, the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. That's what he tells them. And he's talking about that second death. There is no second death. There is no agony of death for the believer. 1 John chapter 3, John, after witnessing the teaching of Jesus when it comes to the resurrection, says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. But this we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. So we will receive these eternal bodies in the resurrection as well. The apostles were just greatly gripped by the truth of the resurrection. And it's really fun to study uh, uh, the book of Acts um, and the epistles as well. But particularly the book of Acts as we watch that preaching in the early church. Acts chapter 4, just listen to this, 1 through 2. As they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple of the guard and the Sadducees came up to them. Now, well, what what's bothering them. They were greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They were greatly bothered that they were saying there's hope in Jesus. He's resurrected from the dead. and If you put your faith in him, you will be resurrected from the dead. And it angered, it angered the religious leaders, particularly the Sadducees who rejected that. If you follow it along, later Paul comes along, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14. He says this, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. And listen to this, and will be present with us. There's, a, there's an actual physical presence of this body with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm thankful that this one doesn't get to go on because it's getting tired. You know what I mean, right? But we'll have a body like the resurrected Lord, one outfitted for eternity, and we'll be present with him. One of my favorite passages that I use often in funerals and memorial services, and in fact, some of you said, please preach this at mine. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 through 21, for our citizenship is in heaven. That's really good to know, right? I know we have a temporary one. It might say American citizen or somewhere else you might be a citizen. But we have one that's in heaven from which also we eagerly await a Savior. That's a mark of a Christian. We are not eager about getting rich and having everything we can have on this earth. If God blesses you with that, praise the Lord, use it for his glory. But we eagerly wait our eternal home. That's the mark of a Christian. And then he goes on to say this. Who will transform the body of our humble estate? I think that's putting it mildly, right? I was studying this week, I go, yeah, Lord, it's more than humble estate. It's falling apart. But it will transform this humble estate into conformity with the body of his glory. So study Jesus after the resurrection, and that's what you're going to look like. That's what he's going to do this. And the Bible says this, by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So you go, well, how's he going to do this? Well, how did he create the world? He spoke it into existence. And he will give you a body by his exertion of his ability to speak creation. He'll give you a body that will last for all of eternity. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 16-18. I'm telling you, these apostles are consumed with the resurrection. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then... And I hope we get to see this. We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so that we will always, I love that word circled in my Bible, we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with this. We'll always be with the Lord. In physical resurrected bodies, an essential key to Christian doctrine is the resurrection. Without it, we don't get the gospel right. The resurrection is for those who believe in him. God created mankind to live forever. That's his goal. He gave us bodies that live forever. They rejected him. They fell into sin. Sin brought that. But his goal is to resurrect us, give us bodies that will live forever. And listen, the Lord had no trouble designing bodies out of the dust of the earth, he'll have no problem by his strength and exercise of his power to give you an eternal body. Now, the truth of the resurrection of Christ is for all humanity. It's for all humanity. But it is a glorious aspect of the Christian doctrine. We believe that the cross was not the final work of our Lord. The cross was showed its power by the demonstration of the resurrection that the cross did what God sent him to accomplish. And so there we see Christian doctrine coming to fully together and we enjoy it and it strengthens our assurance. When we study the, the resurrection, we walk away and we go, I know my Lord died for me because he rose from the dead. And if he rose from the dead, he will rise me. This was not always the case, though. Here in the first centuries, we look into this letter here, particularly the church in Corinth. There was growing agnosticism. This was the idea of Greek and Roman culture. They looked at matter, uh, fleshly bodies. They, they longed from liberation from those bodies. And as I read on this, I thought, well, I long for that too. But that's not how they were looking at it. They were were looking at it as a source of power for themselves, that that there's no way that God has anything to do with flesh and matter. And so guess what happened? They rejected the humanity of Jesus Christ. And if you don't have a human on that cross, you have nobody representing you. You You have no way to heaven. And so this agnostic view kept growing. And not only in the pagan world did it grow, but you had strict Sadducees who who were among the Jews who rejected, they rejected the resurrection. Both groups believed in immortality of the soul, but were ardently denying the bodily resurrection. They would do crazy things. They they taught of ghosts, right? When, When the disciples are on the water and Jesus is walking to them, what do they say? See, it's a ghost. See, had it worked its way into their thinking, they, they were still struggling with what the afterlife looked like. Remember when Peter chapter 5, Acts chapter 5, gets released from prison. Remember, he's chained between all these guards. He's got several gates to get out. This angel comes in. Uh, chains fall off of him. He gets up. Everybody's asleep. Walks out one gate. Walks out two gates. Angel leads them over to John Mark's mom's house. Rhoda, the little servant girl, opens the door and says, It's Peter. Shuts the door. Runs back and says, He's there. And what do they say? It's Peter's angel. See, their theology was not straight yet. And it worked its way into the early church. They were not thinking and understanding that God loves the physical body. He designed the physical body, and Adam and Eve were designed to live forever. But they rejected God. But that didn't stop Him. He is going to design your body to live forever. That's been His purpose from the beginning. And so bodily resurrection teaches this over and over this false teaching of agnostic and jewish uh fables crept its way into corinth church and and you can see that they were struggling with it as pastor brian read that text you can see they were struggling with it and that's why paul took them back to the centrality of the gospel remember the first four verses we looked at this last week i make known to you, brethren the gospel which i preached to you which you received right In which you stand, in which you are saved, which you hold fast the word which I preached you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you of first importance, also what I received that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. See, Paul wants to remind us and remind them that the gospel that they believed, that they had already believed. In the resurrection. He says, You believed in this, you stood in it, you received it. And if you'd stood in this and if you received it, you've already said, I believe in the resurrection. Otherwise, you didn't receive it. If you say, Well, I believe Jesus died for me, but I don't believe in the resurrection, you didn't, you're not saved. You don't have the gospel, you have some other gospel. You have a Jesus still hanging on a cross and everybody's sad about that and there's all kinds of steps you have to take to try to, to get justification from him and then provide your own justification. Oh, that's, you know that, that where that comes from, right? That's not the gospel. The gospel is we believe Jesus died for our past, present, and future sins and God resurrected him from the dead and gave him life and he now raised from the grave in full humanity and he is a picture of what he's going to do for us, because our sins have been forgiven. The resurrection was a statement of proof that our sins are forgiven. And if you don't teach the resurrection, you don't teach the gospel. You know this verse, Romans 10:9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God what, raised, raised him, him from the dead, you will be saved. Yes. It does not say, "Well, oh, I believe that he died. But, hey, I don't know about this resurrection thing. You know what you're going to do? You're going to try to add to what Jesus did on the cross. You'll have to. You'll have to. You leave him on a cross hanging there. You're going to have to add something in some way to try to get yourself justified to get into heaven. And there's none righteous. No, not one. And you'll fail. And that's where the world and its religion often finds itself. So the resurrection is the central part of the gospel. and Without it, you have no gospel. So Paul's goal here as we get to these verses is to help them believe that the resurrection of the dead is a promise to believers. And it is authorized, it is validated by the very resurrection of Christ himself. And so in order to do that, what he's going to do to dispel this false teaching that had worked its way into the Corinth church, he's going to give the reader in these verses seven negative aspects of if Christ is not raised. Now it's fascinating that his argument here, it's almost like a courtroom type of structure of what he does. He's bringing seven negative results to our lives if Christ has not risen. And that's my goal to take you through those this morning. And the central point of all of that, deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, denies your own resurrection, and you will be left in your sins. So let's look at these quickly as we work through these. One, Deny a bodily resurrection is to deny the humanity of Christ. Look at verses 12 and 13. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. Well, notice Paul's setting up the first section to a question here. He asks a question. Paul's saying... Christ was preached to you. You received it. You stood in this truth. You were saved by the gospel. That was given according to the scriptures, not according to Paul or anybody else. It was given according to the scriptures. And if Christ died, was buried, and raised from the dead according to the scriptures, how is it possible that some of you are saying there's no bodily resurrection of ourselves? This is what Paul does. Notice a little phrase that says, no resurrection from the dead. We have to make sure that we're understanding this. Christ died. There was no life in his body when they put him in that tomb. He wasn't secretly sleeping or in some comatose type of period that some people teach. He was dead because that's the wages of sin. He died for us. And so here the Bible says that there's no resurrection from the dead if Christ is not raised. When they cross the Greek word there for dead, it literally means powerless. It's often used in the scriptures and other places of corpse. Resurrection of the corpse, you could almost say it that way. They're lifeless, useless, and completely ineffective. If you've got a corpse laying around, which I hope you don't, you're not going to get much out of them. Some of you are saying, sounds like my employees or kids. The corpse can't do anything for you. He can't do anything for himself. They're lifeless. And so there's no resurrection from the dead as they are saying that there is no life after death. And, and, and the Lord knows that, no physical life. Maybe some sparkly float around there in the wilderness of, of space somewhere, they may think. They may dream up of something. But there is no resurrection of the dead how can you say that so this question is setting up paul's argument and he's setting up an argument of deadly eternal devastating consequences if you reject christ's resurrection you reject your own resurrection and all that will be raised throughout this look at verse 13 again he said but if there is no resurrection of the dead not even christ has been raised well, Paul starts with a simple but direct statement that if there is no bodily resurrection of believers, then Christ himself has not been raised, right? And the statement is completely contrary to the gospel he just laid down. So Paul's goal is to show that when they deny human resurrection, they deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and this is tied to the fact that many were still struggling with the humanity of the Lord. They, they struggled that Jesus was a man, that agnostic view, um, that bad view of of theology proper of who God was, and then a bad view of of human understanding humanity, anthropology, bad view of those created that there's no way that God, the God the Son, would ever indwell in a human body, and so this teaching had penetrated the theology of the first church and they were struggling to understand who God was. They could not see that God would mix himself with matter. And he had to be separate from that. And it started to affect everything their view of Christ and humanity and their view of the resurrection. But we know and here's a theological term that that I'll explain here. We believe in the hypostatic union of Christ. That Jesus is truly God and truly man. In fact, the gospel rides on that fact. You hear my words. I'm choosing them carefully. He's truly God. I, I think it's even better than fully God. He is truly God and he is truly man. That is the hypostatic union of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is extremely important to what we believe. So yes, Jesus is truly God. He's perfect in every way. He has the essence and glory of God. He shares that. The world beheld his glory, John tells us. In the glory of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. So Jesus was truly God. He's truly the full explanation of God. Verse 8, uh, John 1:18. He explains God. Man cannot know God fully outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you cannot have a relationship with God if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. He is the full explanation of God. Because he shares his essence and deity. So... He is God. He's God in bodily form. He dwelt among mankind, and John wrote that in his epistle. He is—he's—he's he's the one who was here. As he starts his first epistle, John says he was here from the beginning. We heard him, we saw him, we looked at him, we touched him. He was the one called the Word of Life, and he goes on to explain Jesus is God incarnate. He's incarnate in bodily form, and we saw, and we testify, and that's the one we proclaim. He's making it clear without a shadow of doubt you could actually touch Jesus. Oh, the agnostics and and people, the Jews, I mean, they just could not believe that God would be incarnate. And so Jesus was truly man and truly God. And this is all leading to what their belief and not the resurrection. And when you think about him being truly man, it's just as important. We spend a lot of time defending his deity, don't we? Because there's all kinds of religious groups out there that attack Jesus of not being, de- being God, right? But we have to defend his, his humanity just as much. Because if he's only God and not truly man, we have no one to hang on that cross. We have no one that they can kill, no one that he can die. Right, He has to die because the wages of sin is death, and he takes that upon himself. So he has to be truly man so that he takes on all of the wages of sin you and I committed. And so we defend his humanity as much as we defend his deity. And the apostles defend this doctrine throughout the scriptures. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one God, one mediator who is also between God and men, the man. I love that. The man, Christ Jesus. Hebrews chapter two verse seventeen. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. See, you imagine, can you hear that? Jesus is referring to us as his brethren. We often call him our older brother. Once we're in the faith, God's going to sh- split, give us his inheritance. We're going to be joint heirs with our older brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, because he stepped out of heaven and became our older brother. That's what the Bible's saying. He had to be made. He had to be made like his brethren. Why? Because if he's not one of us, he can't die for us. He can't represent us. He can't bring us into the Father. And he can't resurrect our bodies to be like him. And so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest and everything pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. He's man in every way. Even in his judgment, Pilate said, Behold the man, John 19. Galatians chapter 4 says he was born of a woman born under the law. And when you get into Acts, when the gospel starts to take off and that first sermon is Prince preached in chapter 2, listen to what Peter says, verse 22 and following. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man, attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourself know, this man... Delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death, but God raised him up again. Listen to this. Putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. That's the agony of death that you and I don't see. Yes, you may die. We have some people now in our midst, members who are close to going home, and they God may take their last breath, and they, but they will instantly be with the Lord, and they'll never suffer the agony of death. And agony of death is not painful. Some Christians have died very painful deaths. That's not what this is about. The agony of death is being judged for eternity for your sins. That's the second death. God has taken that out of the way through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here we have this man, right? Mark three six three says he's the son of a carpenter. I like that. He died bodily. He was resurrected bodily. And I'll tell you this, rejection of Christ's humanity, rejection of that is pure demonic. You go, how do you know that? Listen to John, first, uh, excuse me, Second John 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. To reject Jesus Christ as being in the flesh is pure demonic. You know why? Because Satan says if people get their mind around that Jesus came, stepped out of heaven, became incarnate, added to him, truly man, being truly God, that's the only way that they'll be saved. That's the only way they can beat me and death and all the judgment that's coming with me. I've got to stop them from believing in that. That's why it says the deceiver, the antichrist. Now, We'll see our Lord's physical life on earth. We see him, right? We study the New Testament. We study the Gospels. We see him born. We see him possessing a human soul. He says, my soul is in agony. So he, he, I mean, he takes on everything we have, right? Without sin. He's troubled at times, his soul is troubled. He feels sorrow and grief, he grows weary, he's hungry and thirst. He bled from whippings and thorns of crown, crowns of thorns. He's nails are driven to his hands and his feet. A sword pierces his side. They wrapped his body in linen, and they buried him. He was truly human. He was truly human in every way. And he died a human, and he was rose again as a human. Yet without sin. He's our Lord. And he is who we worship. I love when he appears to uh, the, the 12 after the resurrection. First he comes and Thomas isn't there, right? I don't know what Thomas was doing, but that was a big mistake, whatever he was doing. But God loves his disciples. He loves his followers. So he comes back eight days later. Again, the next Easter Sunday, right? The next Sunday night. He comes back eight days later to his disciples, and they were again inside, and Thomas was with them this time, the Bible says in John 20, 20, 26. And Jesus came, and the doors haven't been shut. All of a sudden, he stands in the midst of them. Whoa. So he's got a body like ours. He's physical, but he can go right through walls. I'm liking this. Peace be with you. What a great statement. They've killed our Lord. Some of us don't believe he's resurrected from the dead because some have seen, some have not. And the first thing he says is peace. I have a peace that passes all understanding. And they're probably going, you better because you just came through a locked door. I mean, just think about this. And then he turns to Thomas and he says, reach here with your finger, see my hands, reach your hands and put them into my side and do not be unbelieving but believing. What a statement by the greatest preacher of all time, the Lord Jesus Christ. Stop unbelieving. Here I am. Thrust your hand in my side. Is that what it's going to take? And then he tells them all. He says, you've seen me, but blessed are those who do not see me and yet believe. For theirs is the kingdom of God. One more detail that I love about his resurrection is in Luke 24, 42, he asked for some fish. So not only is he in a physical, resurrected body. And not only can he seem to just move about wherever he is, is, wants to go. And the Bible says we'll be like him when we see him. He's still eating. That's good news for us men. I don't know about you ladies, but uh, we're really happy about that. And the Bible tells us there's a feast in heaven. And we look forward to that. One last thought, just on these apostles. They were so gripped... By the resurrection this this changed everything right they went out and taught they were sent out by twos the 70 and they came back and they did wonderful things and jesus said i saw satan fallen like a star and all those things but but they were fled at his at his arrest right resurrected holy spirit given to them these are fearless men acts chapter 3 second sermon They've raised, they've healed the man at the portico of Solomon's temple. And, and man, do they find the fury of the religious leaders. But Peter, now gripped by the glory of a resurrected Christ, turns to them, chapter 3, verse 13, and following he says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. Ooh. Remember, he said, the last, next time you see me, I'll be at the right hand of the Father. Acts chapter 7, they're stoning Stoning, uh, Stoning Stephen. Stephen looks up and he says, "I see the Son of God sitting at the right hand of the Father." They didn't like any of this. Peter's bolden now. He says, "The one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him, but you disowned the holy and righteous ones." These man, this dude is on fire, isn't he? In front of the killers of Christ. This man. You delivered over. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murder to be granted to you, but put to death, listen to this term, the prince of life. Not the prince of death. That's Satan. He's the one who works in the sons of disobedience. You put to death this prince of life. And the one, then this really kicks him hard, the one whom God raised from the dead, the fact in which we are witnesses To this day. What are you going to do about us? We've seen him. And not only us, verses 5 through 7 says, all of the disciples have seen him and 500 more people saw him. What are you going to do with that? You want us to stop preaching? I don't think so. You can kill us, take our families, strip us of our wealth. We are preaching the resurrected Christ. That's what the apostles stood on. And so when you get to verse 13 in our text, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised, he is using this as a negative teaching of a, of a positive truth, right? Man, if he isn't raised, we, we, we are biggest idiots in the world. And we have no hope. Second negative thought here. I've got to pick up the pace. If Christ is not bodily, bodily re- resurrected, all preaching is worthless. Look at verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised... Then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also in vain. The word "vain" kenosis is the word there. It is a it's a word that means empty, foolish, futile, without basis, without power or truth. It has carries the idea of senselessness, right? Without effect. So in other words, Paul is saying if Christ is not bodily resurrected, he is dead forever. And all preaching from the birth of the church until now is completely worthless. And the gospel is a major hoax. That's what he's saying. This is what he's doing. He's trying to help them realize the absurdity, the absurdity of what's going on in this church, the denial of Christ, the denial of his glory, denial of his resurrection. Now Christ told them repeatedly that he must die at the hands of sinful men he must rise from the dead meaning he was going to be the accepted sacrifice he was going to be the substitutionary death for our sins he was going to satisfy God and God would raise him from the dead to prove all that to be true he told them over and over but if he does not rise bodily from the dead there will be no validation and no value to his death he's just another dead guy records tell us that they crucified thousands of men before Jesus. He would just be in the list of that if this was not God's design. And that would mean that there's no good news. There's no assurance of eternal life. You can't proclaim that. You can't preach that because if the resurrection is not the validation of the finished work of Lord Jesus Christ, you have nothing. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. Paul's going to tell them that. Now, one couple more verses. Bobby preached uh, this passage on sunrise service out in the field out here. Romans 1, 1 through 4. Listen to these verses. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand. And remember, the, gospels, the, the gospel is validated in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning the Son, who was born the descendant of David, just like the Bible said, according to flesh. That's a very important point. The beginning of the book of Romans validates that Jesus Christ came in flesh. And he's all part of the promise of the Scriptures. He had human flesh. He was made like one of us. Who, verse 4, was declared the Son of God. Now listen to this. With the power of the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Christ Jesus our Lord. If he isn't raised from the dead, there is no declaration that he is the son of God. There is no declaration that he is a savior. You have not a Lord who can rescue you. You have a dead Jesus. That's all you have. Just like so many before him. But then revelation comes along and John is taken into this vision In Revelation chapter 1, 17 through 18, Jesus says, I am the first and the last. I love this phrase. I am living, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death in Haiti. Now, this is going to empower John's preaching, isn't it? And he's the last of the apostles. They all die off. John's the last. He's even sequestered to the island of Patmos there. But he just comes inflamed with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is the one who died, but he's alive forevermore. He's not dead forevermore. He's alive forevermore. That's who they preached. And these men were gripped with this truth. I want to show you a verse, uh, Romans chapter 14, verse 9. Oh, this is one of my favorite verses on the resurrection. Romans 14, verse 9. Paul has been telling the church in Romans that... If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Everything's in, right? As a Christian, it's all in. All the chips get pushed to the center. He's either who he is and did what he said he did and is who he said he is or just a bunch of morons, right? <laughs> it's, I mean, that's the way Paul teaches, right? I think that's the way Christianity is. We're all in or we're not. You're not kind of saved or not, well, so I'm going to sit back and I'll say a prayer or walk an aisle. But if this doesn't work out, I'm exit stage right. That's not how it is. So we either we either live with him and die with him or or we don't have him. Now look at verse 9. For to this end Christ died and lived again. Now, it can't be a spirit being here. This can't be sparklies out there flying around. This is living, right? This is who they saw, resurrected. For this end, Christ died, lived again, that he might be the Lord both look at this of the dead and of the living. Well, that's what the Bible says in many places. Jesus Christ is going to what? He's going to judge the living and the dead. That's who he is. He is physically going to sit on a throne, separate sheep and goats, give, give gifts to those who served him, and punish, judge those who rejected him. That's what he's going to do. And he's going to do that in your flesh, and you're going to watch him do that in your flesh. And that resurrected body. So this message that had been preached from day one from the apostles is what they held on. There was a bodily resurrection of Christ, and God was proving that, that he, he, he forgave. His wrath was completely satisfied. He stamped the approval of the death of and the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if Christ is not bodily raised from the dead, there is no good news. Sin, Satan, and death are not defeated. Hell swallows up the entire human race. The prophets, the angels, the scriptures, every preacher like myself is a liar. That's what he's saying here in our text. The gospel's empty. It's foolish. It's futile. It's powerless. And it's without effect. Paul's driving home his point. You want to tell this church that there's no resurrection? That's what you're doing. He is rooting out people who are rejecting the gospel. Third, end of verse 14 if Christ is not bodily resurrected all faith in Christ is worthless notice right at the end of verse 14 your faith also is in vain he repeats the same kind of statement in verse 17 just drop down there a little bit if Christ has not been raised your faith is worthless see this is the resulting consequence if Christ is not bodily resurrected you have a worthless faith see a dead Jesus can't give new life You got that? A dead Jesus can't give eternal life and he can't give new life. He's dead. He has no power over death. He has no life to give because he couldn't beat death. And so a dead Jesus can certainly not give his followers physical life if he can't beat it. And everyone from the apostles to us cannot say, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confess him as Lord, you will be saved. Because if you have a dead Jesus, your faith is worthless. We have nothing to proclaim. You see what he's doing? He's using a negative way to reinforce a biblical truth. And we would just be like the rest of the world's religion. We would be those who place our hope in worthless things, right? Do this, do that, you know, a couple of those and some deep, deep knee bends and hope some way I could get justified to get to this God because Christ couldn't finish the deal. So so whatever he did plus what I did, maybe somehow, hopefully, I might go burn for a while, but somehow I'm going to get there. This is disastrous, isn't it? It's a lie from the pit of hell. We write everything on a resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. He is our only hope, isn't he? So when you think about this, all the Old Testament patriarchs and matriarchs that we see in like Hebrews 11, they're just fools. All the suffering that went through, I read through that passage this week. All of their suffering was needless. Their faith was in vain. Their death was in vain. There's men, Saul, and two others stoned. Lives were lost. All worthless if Christ does not come out of the grave. All their time wasted. All their efforts gone. And all people who put their hope in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, of our hope is in Him. It is not in vain, right? The gospel is not worthless to us. Our faith is not worthless. It's placed. In the perfect one, isn't it? Our Lord Jesus Christ. But if there's no physical life of Jesus, there is no physical eternal life with Christ. You die in your sins. Fourth, if Christ is not bodily resurrected, the apostles and all gospel proclaimers, that's you and me, are false witnesses. Look at verse 15. Moreover, moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testify against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if, in fact, the dead are not raised. He keeps coming back to that. He keeps coming back to your personal resurrection to show that all of this is a scam, all of this is a lie if you don't come out of that grave, that you won't be resurrected. And so the apostle here has personally selected by the Lord. So here's the apostles, right? So he's... I, I, I really want to point them out first because they, ha- they left everything on the line, right? They're the, they're the, the uh, Ephesians 2.20 says they're the pillars and foundations of the church, right? What their teachings were. So here, this apostle, the Lord Jesus Christ, has to present himself. The, there's several things. There's a list of things that true apostles are. People in this area need to read that. But um, it's all found in different passages of scriptures. But one is the Lord has to select them personally. He has to select them. And then two, and and most importantly, they have to be witnesses of the bodily resurrection of Christ. Now, this is why John says, we saw him, we touched him. He's saying we've experienced him, we know he was resurrected. Nobody can say that. Well, I had a vision of Jesus when I was out on vacation. I don't want you to drink, but that's just a vision, and and it's probably not even right. These apostles saw him, touched him. They are giving their life up because they know he's from the dead. And he beat it. And so, if Paul, Paul's saying, look, I, I know what I saw. He he made himself visual to us. Now, he says, Scott, how do you know this? Well, Acts chapter 1, 21 through 22. I know I'm going fast today because there's a lot here to cover. But um, verse... chapter 1 verse 21 he says this and this is after they needed to choose judas has hung himself they need to replace they need to replace um judas and so the bible says therefore it is necessary luke writing here that the men who had accompanied us all the time that the lord went in and out among us so they're going to choose an apostle with from someone who was going with them he wasn't part of the original 12 but he was there he had to be one who saw the lord Touch the Lord. Experience the Lord. That's what they're saying. Luke's saying this. Beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us. So after the 40 days here on this earth and showing himself to the 500 and all the apostles, they had to see him for these must become witnesses with us of his resurrection. So anybody who you see on TV or down the street or anywhere that says they're an apostle, they're a liar. This is who... Is the apostle, So this has to be clear because he's putting he's put his apostolic position on the line in the defense of a bodily resurrection here. Now, as noted in previous sermons, Jesus showed himself to all these apostles, to 500 of the brethren, right? His bodily resurrected Lord. They empowered their preaching. He spent 40 days with them, teaching them of his coming kingdom. They, these days were spent with a really, truly bodily resurrected Christ And their testimonies and their lives portray this all the way through the book of Acts and the epistles. And if the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ weren't true, Paul bluntly states, now notice what he says, I'm a false witness of God. In other words, verse 15 there, I'm lying about God, I'm lying about who he is, I'm lying about what he did, I'm lying about his character, and I'm lying about his power and his purpose. That's what he's saying, I'm a false witness. And then he uses another term, right? He says, because we testified against God. Courtroom terms here again, right? Remember, the scriptures repeatedly say that God raised Jesus from the dead. And Jesus submitted to that death, right? He he waited to be raised by the Father. He didn't raise himself. We have to be careful. Sometimes we'll say, well, Jesus raised himself from the dead. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. The Father raised him. He waited. He waited. Because it was the father was going to validate that he had received him as the final lamb. So he waited for the father to raise him. Now he shares all power and deity and we go down that line with the Lord. But he waited on God to raise him. And so, yes, Christ beats sin, he beats Satan, he beats death, but it was God who raised him from the dead and puts his complete stamp of approval on him. And when the apostles and ourselves proclaim this truth, whether that's at public or from this pulpit, that there's a bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are not only witnesses of Christ's victory over sin, Satan, and death, but we are witnesses of the power of God's propitiatory work. He was satisfied in Christ. And every time we preach a resurrected Savior, we proclaim the work of God. We don't testify against it. We testify with it. You see the difference? And this is what he's doing. So we or any other false witnesses, uh, maybe even in this early church, who deny human resurrection, they have to deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's laying them down. And so our assurance of eternal life is directly tied To the resurrection of Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says, if that's not true, we're just liars. Now, the resurrection from the dead, if the resurrection of the dead doesn't happen, then then Christ doesn't happen, right? The gospel's a lie and all of that. Uh, In the early 1900s, there was a movement called what we call the modern movement. And the modern movement began to say, well, we just don't think the Bible is 100% accurate. And we think that. God may have been some clockwinder and got something started, but clearly evolution is true. And all that began to invade into the church in the 1920s and on. It's called the modern movement. Well, gospel preachers began to fight against this because in that, they lumped into that Jesus Christ really didn't physically raise from the dead because he's God and he, that really didn't happen. But you can believe in him and he'll forgive your sins, but he didn't raise from the dead. This was going on all over the place. Well, a man named Alfred Henry Ackley, couldn't take it. He was a preacher and a poet. On a Sunday morning, his uh, testimony says this, he was shaving and he had the radio on in New York City and he heard a preacher say that Jesus Christ did not raise from the dead physically. He put down his razor, and it goes on to say, he sat down in that moment and wrote this. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living, whatever men may say. I see his hands of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus, what? Lives today. We've been battling this stuff from the first century, right? And where's it coming from? Unbelievers. They worm their waste into the church, and they deny the gospel. Look, it's coming more. More of this is coming our way. Oh, and does God really mean that? Does he really stand on this? No, no. Believers believe his word. Amen. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 21. We believe all of it. 22, sorry. <laughs> we believe all of it. Just start thinking. How many, how many chapters in Revelation? It's how fast your mind has to work sometimes up here. Now, now notice he, said, he did this according to scriptures, the Bible says. That God raised him from according to scriptures. Now, I want to hit this, I want to finish this point. That means not only that the apostles and anyone else like us who proclaim the gospel are false witnesses, but all of the writers of the Old Testament are false witnesses. I have time to go to a million passages I could take you, but I thought of a couple. Psalms, chapter 16, verse 10. You will not abandon my soul in Sheol nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. David wrote that. David died, and let me tell you, his body decayed. Peter says in chapter 13, he says, we have his bones with us. (laughs) He decayed. So this has to be someone greater than than, than David, right? And so the Bible says that the Old Old Testament prophets wrote this, and then... Isaiah 53, I've got to show you this, and then, then I'll quit. I'll come back next week. Um, I know, I know. Isaiah 53, you've got to look at this. Because, so you see, you get chasing this in the Old Testament. And so Isaiah is also a liar, right? So, so if he isn't raised from the dead according to the Scriptures, everyone who wrote this stuff is a liar. Isaiah 53, I mean, <laughs> it's our passage, isn't it? It's a suffering servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. All our iniquities are placed on him. He's like a lamb led to slaughter, right? He is crushed for our transgressions. God crushes him. Look at verse 10 with me. But the Lord was pleased to crush him. That's a hard verse to read, isn't it? You know why? Because you're a Christian. And you know that your sins put your Savior to death. And that still resonates with you, doesn't it? There's a mixture of sorrow and joy, isn't that? I am a sinner and my Savior had to die because of my sins. But the Lord was pleased because this was his plan. He put him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, that was Jesus, right? He was our guilt offering, he was the final lamb. Listen to this He will see his offspring. Wait a minute. Non resurrected people don't see their offspring, they don't see them. This this one, this final lamb sees his offspring. Look at this. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper his hand. Oh, wait till you see Jesus when he returns. Wait till you see what he has for you. His prospering hand is at work, isn't it? Verse 11, as a result, the anguish of his soul. Remember, he's like us. He anguishes in his soul. He will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge of the righteous one. My servant will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. This is the cross work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we get to his resurrection. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. At his name, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. They will cry out, his Lord of lords. Dead people don't get that accolade, do they? And it gets better, look at this. He will divide up the booty with the strong. That booty means plunder for you younger generation. I already know what you're thinking. He's going to give all what he has, all that God has given him to you. Dead saviors don't give away their inheritance. They share it with the living. That's us. And he was numbered with transgressors, and yet he himself bore the sins of many and intercedes for transgressions. This is the work of a living Savior. And so as you go back, and as I conclude this point, and I will come back next week and pick this up, but look at verse 15 and 16 here, moreover, We are found false witnesses, Paul says. We've testified against God that he raised from the dead whom he did not raise. In fact, the dead are not raised. Then he validates it, and here's verse 16. Verse 16 is the conclusion of verse 15. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. So if Christ is not raised, we're not raised, the gospel's worthless, your faith is worthless, the preaching is worthless, God's worthless, Christ is worthless, the Holy Spirit is worthless, the inspired scripture is worthless, you have nothing. And that's why later he says, just eat, drink, and be merry. And everyone who has ever proclaimed or ever will proclaim Christ's bodily resurrection is just a false witness and testifies against God if he did not raise his son. Look, Paul's betting the whole farm on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's all in. Are you? Is this your faith? Is it in the absolute person of the Lord Jesus Christ alone that he died for your sins? He was buried dead. And God raised him from the dead to prove that he forgave your sins. Is that where you're at today? If not, you will only see him as your judge. And you will be given an eternal body, but one that will suffer forever. That's what the Bible teaches. But if you do believe that... And God has given you faith. And it's not in vain because you believe that Jesus Christ was resurrected. You will be resurrected. You will be in his presence and enjoy him forever. That's the gospel. Father, we could talk about your son all day long. Because it includes us. It includes our bodily resurrection, Lord. And so we, we we are so encouraged this morning. And though there are naysayers throughout time, those who are false teachers and the true false witnesses and true false testifiers of God, though those who have always been around and always will be till you judge them eternally, we believe. And we give you credit for that. Because on our own, we could not do it on our own. And so you gave us faith. You planted it in our hearts And we dead in our sins. You made us alive in Jesus Christ, and we believe in him. And we believe you brought him out of the grave. And we believe that Peter and James and John and even Paul and the rest of the disciples and 500 others saw him and testified and empowered them to preach. And they passed down this gospel, hand it down once and for all this unshakable gospel that many stumble over, but not your elect. They believe. They repent. They run to Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. And in the result is you will raise them bodily to be with the bodily resurrected Lord Jesus for all of eternity. Oh Lord, (laughs) write this on our souls, Lord. May it come out of us when we lie down, when we rise up, when we stand, when we speak, when we're silent, when we pray. May these truths flow from us. God fearing, Christ loving children of God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.